Simple Beep, Episode 50, Legacy IO. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we've made it to our 50th episode, which is kind of shocking that we've made it this far and that we still have some fairly large topics uncovered at this point. Uh, and we're going to tackle one of those today. But before we get into it, of course, we have a little bit of follow-up. And I think follow-up came very quickly on the heels of our past episode, which was all about the town hall event space at Apple's Infinite Loop campus. And I think so the, the first one is something that was maybe I misspoke a little bit or was a little bit unclear about some of the events that may or may not have happened there. So one of the things I said was, I believe the exact words that I used were for the original iMac launch that I said that Apple called people down to campus, which was not strictly true. And that event definitely did not happen in the town hall event space where Steve Jobs announced the original iMac, the Bondi Blue iMac. It did happen in Cupertino, though. It happened at the Flint Center, which is right there in Cupertino. So that was kind of what I was thinking about in terms of that story was that like, for people who were based in San Francisco or elsewhere in the Bay Area, it was like, come down to Cupertino uh, to a relatively small event space. I think the Flint Center holds about 500, so maybe a little bit bigger than Town Hall. And so that was what happened there. And that was the event that some press were a little bit weary of Apple's small events and didn't make it to. And then they had some catching up. <laughs> The other bit of clarifying follow-up is that for the iPhone 4S event, which did happen in the town hall space, we talked about the chair that was reserved ostensibly for Steve Jobs. And I think it was alluded to the fact that he um, passed away very close to that event. And uh, we also would like to clarify that that he passed away the day after the keynote. Yeah, I think I screwed that up. I think I said that he had that he had died shortly before the event, but in fact he died shortly after the event, which really makes it kind of all the worse that they were still saving the chair for him and that it had that symbolic power because I think someone who who clarified that for us and and sent us a link about that said, "Yep, they knew," which made it even more poignant in that case. So sorry for messing up that story because it is uh, it is an important and touching story. Yeah. So now let's move on to our topic for today. And this is a far wide ranging topic as we've discovered. And it's something that has been a little bit in the news recently. It's always fun for us to take something that's in the current news. You know, you can listen to this episode as soon as we release it or we try to make our episodes last basically, you know, they last forever, they're timeless. But one of the things that's been talked about a lot recently is the way that you get data in and out of Macs in particular. And the fact that we have, as we record this in late fall of 2016, we've got new MacBook Pros and they've got Thunderbolt 3 ports and that's pretty much it. <laughs> yep. Uh, and this has caused a lot of consternation. There was... Uh, People complaining about the number of dongles that they have to buy. Apple actually putting some of those dongles on sale. Apple not even making some of those dongles that they're from third party. Basically, if you're listening to this show as soon as it comes out, this is probably the 10th podcast in the last week that you've heard of that 
says that has had the word dongle in it repeatedly and repeatedly. So if if you're sick of that, I guess you can just file this one away for for another rainy day. <laughs> um, and the fact of the matter is that we're not really going to be talking all that much about Apple's newest computers because that's not really our subject. <laughs> yeah, that's not what we do. But we are going to talk about the fact that, well, we're going to give some historical perspective and show that while everyone thinks that we're in dongle hell right now, things are actually pretty good. <laughs> um, and that there have been a lot of strange connectors, strange adapters needed for those connectors over the course of the history of the Mac. And so I think we're going to divide it up into several chunks. There are a lot, and this is one of the interesting things about where we are today with Apple's latest products. One of the weird things and one of the things about Thunderbolt 3 and these ports that has made them require so many different adapters is that they're everything ports. So over that, you can do traditional like disk IO, you can do audio, you can do video, you can do power. Peripherals, everything. Yeah, everything is coming in over these four ports, except for a head headphone jack as well. Uh, still lingers on the MacBook Pro. But so if we're talking about IO today or 10 years in the future, we might not have categories. But we're going to break things down into several categories. So yeah, like peripherals, uh, networking, displays, and audio are kind of big categories where there have been significant changes to how you get that information in or out of Macs. And I think the best place to start is to talk about some of the peripherals that were necessary going all the way back to the very first Macs. We've kind of touched on the connectors and the interfaces in our dedicated episodes to mice and keyboards, but let's go back and talk about them in a little more detail right now. The first Macs, the 128K and the Fat Mac and a couple of the other uh, all-in-one form factor Macs had a 19-pin interface for an external floppy drive uh, a DB19 interface to be specific, and a nine pin interface separate from the ADB interfaces that were to come for plugging in your mice and keyboards. And these are, you know, like trapezoidal shapes just with pins. Like maybe if you're familiar with VGA or DVI from plugging in your monitors. Uh, and just to, to what Ed was talking about earlier. Now we've got these USB-C connectors that are reversible that can't really get bent pins in them. And I'm going back and looking at photos of these ports where it's like nine little itty bitty pins or 19 itty bitty pins. I mean, like, oh, this was a nightmare. Bent pins were a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that's a common theme across a lot of these early connector types that we're going to go through is that many of them were named based on the number of pins that they had. Like lots and lots of numbers in here that indicate exactly how many pins you're putting data over. Because if you get down, you know, down to the metal and the electrical engineering of this, the way that you transmit information is through electrical signals, either in serial or parallel. Like those are not just like names that someone came up with that that actually describes you know the circuitry of how how the electricity and the data is being passed on these different ports and if you look at these ones from the early Macs the the very first Macs with the DB9 DB19 like you said Brian they're almost like generic 
kind of ports. Like if if you think of VGA as the only one of those quasi-generic ports that has persisted in any meaningful way into the present, you think of that and it's like, well, yeah, there are rows of pins in a trapezoid-shaped connector. Trapezoid because it's the easiest thing that you can do to make sure that you don't plug it in completely upside down. But then the insidious part of it gets to be when you have these ports and these connectors that are similar shape and size with different numbers of pins or different pin configurations. Like you said, the horror that you might come across using these early connectors is if you bend a pin. Because that's where the data goes. Physically, that's where the data goes. And if you break that piece of hardware, then that's it. It's broken. It doesn't work anymore. And many of the things that plugged into early Macs and other early computers had standalone cables. But of course, if you, if you know, if you destroyed a cable, you either had to have a backup one ready in a drawer or drive to the store. You couldn't Amazon Prime one. <laughs> um, or in many cases, the cables were actually hardwired to the devices themselves. So like, if you broke off a pin on your monitor cable that connected to your PC or your early Mac, that was it. Like you couldn't use that monitor. You would have to take it in for service and have someone do basically soldering work to replace the cable so that then you could use that piece of hardware again. So yeah, you know, we think of this now as kind of dark ages stuff. Like, you know, lightning is reversible, USB C now is reversible. Um you can pretty much plug them any way that you want to destroy one of those connectors. You would have to like break it in half with some, some serious amount of force or like corrode it chemically. But these original connections were pretty fragile and, but they all shared this same kind of architecture and design. I've known people who had bent pins in a connector uh, back in the day and they would say like, well, you know, like this is, this is maybe this is a DB 19, all 19 pins aren't being used for critical things. And I'm not going to get into whether how true <laughs> that might have been. Um, but I do know that in doing the research for this episode, uh, some of the Wikipedia articles for these specific pin interfaces have very detailed schematics. So like this pin was for data. This pin was for power. This pin was for something else. Uh, so maybe it's true that you could have survived for a little bit with maybe one bent pin out of a higher number, but yeah, it was just better to avoid that altogether. Yeah, and one type of connector that we're not going to talk about, I don't think because it didn't go to the Mac, was the 30-pin connector that went to iPods and iPhones for a long time. And, I mean, it functioned the same way, except that at that point, the pins had been so miniaturized that you could barely see them. You could kind of feel them crunching in and out as you as you plugged those connectors in, which was, again, yours, that same thing. Like, am I breaking this? You know, that same kind of thing. And if you if you look at the specification for that, it's exactly the same. Like, you know, six of those 30 pins or something were basically, you know, equivalent to the USB connector on the other end. And then there were other things that were happening, right? And so that's how all of these connectors are built. But uh, then their actual function is the interesting part. So... You had mentioned that these were fairly short-lived connectors, the DB9 and DB19 on the first Macs, because they were replaced with what became a standard in the Mac world, although it was certainly a proprietary type of connector that did not spread 
really beyond the Mac world. And that was the standard way that keyboards and mice were plugged in for a long time, which was ADB, the Apple desktop bus. And we've talked about it significantly on previous shows. Uh, the ones that dealt with those input peripherals, keyboard and mouse. But one of the interesting things is the type of connector that it used. So this gets down to a smaller pin-based connector, and it's called the mini-DIN connector. And there are several different types of this connector, and we'll link to the Wikipedia article. It has a, a good little schematic of all of these. And, and again, pointing out just how dangerous <laughs> this starts to get. So they go from like three all the way up to nine or 10 or 11 pin connectors, where the little round connector itself is identical. But then there may be like an inert block, like a little plastic block that tries to prevent you from plugging it into the wrong type of connection. But that also means that if you plug one of these into, like if you took an ADB uh, plug and tried to plug it into the keyboard connector on uh, a Windows PC or a DOS PC, like you could just jam it in there and it would look like it was fitting, but you were actually destroying things. <laughs> um, bending or breaking those those pins inside. Nevertheless, ADB was uh, was a standard in the Mac world and pretty much every Mac for, for a very, very long time had some ADB connection. Basically from, what was it? Was it the Mac Plus was the first that had it? I think so. All the way to the blue and white tower. Right. And so that was one of the things, you know, one of the bookends to ADB's lifespan we think of as the iMac G3 because it famously had zero ADB ports. And people are like, well, how am I going to plug in all of my useful ADB peripherals? Because it became a standard, much like the dock connector did for, for iPods, where, you know, still today, 2016, you go to a hotel room, they've got like a dock connector, uh, you know, alarm clock thing. And you're like, well, this, this is useless. Uh, in the same way, ADB, I don't know if it had to be licensed or not, but basically the format could be used, the specification could be used for all kinds of other peripherals that made sense to plug into this type of bus. And that meant all kinds of input peripherals, all kinds of third-party keyboards and mice. And we talked about some of those in previous episodes. And those became essentially useless with an iMac, unless, guess what? Here it comes, dongles. (laughs) Uh, Unless you got an adapter that would go from ADB to USB, the new standard. And interestingly here, Apple did not offer that as a solution. There was no Apple adapter that would go from the legacy port of ADB to plug in your Apple Extended Keyboard 2 or whatever you, you know, whatever device you adored and were not willing to replace into your more modern Mac. And so still one of the most common ways of doing this is to obtain a Griffin iMate, which has an ADB uh, plug on one side, USB on the other, and some kind of not-quite-Bondi teal plastic. I have one of these. It's attached to my Apple Extended Keyboard 2, which is not currently in use, but has been in the past. And that was your way of bringing one device over into the new generation of I.O. One of the interesting things, though, that's been mentioned, I think, a lot in the past couple of weeks where and and is like the title of this show. What about legacy I.O.? What about making sure that we don't have 
such a clean break that leaves people behind or forces them to replace hardware that hasn't outrun its utility. And one of the things that I had long forgotten but relearned in the past couple of weeks is that there was a post-iMac product that did that for Apple, which was the blue and white G3 tower, which came with built-in USB ports naturally because that was the new standard that was being put into place on the consumer line of products and also on the pro line of products. But it did have one ADB port hiding stealthily in the back that would let people who had various pro gear that might be a couple hundred dollars or maybe even a significant percentage of the cost of that new G3 tower wouldn't have to be, you know, just thrown away or entrusted to uh, a little, uh, little adapter. And, and I mean, I had to buy my iMate on eBay. It seemed fairly new, but who knows? <laughs> and it flakes occasionally. And when you're typing, that's no good. Like sometimes you get a doubled letter or a skipped letter. And if you were relying on pro gear that was attached through ADB, also no good if you're going through a potentially flaky adapter. So that's the kind of end arc of ADB. One little final footnote to the history of ADB. Okay, so it went away with the iMac. No, it actually went away with the blue and white tower. Actually, no. ADB, the the bus specification as opposed to the port, which is more of our focus in this show, didn't actually go away until 2004. So in PowerBooks, all the way up through 2004, the internal trackpads that were built into the case, well, they're essentially, they're pointing devices, just like mice, and it turns out that they were running internally on the Apple desktop bus inside of those laptops. So the very last Macs that had ADB in any form were some G4 PowerBooks that were uh, introduced in 2004. A little bit of real-time follow-up. The Mac Plus was actually the last Mac to use the DB9, and it was the Mac SE that was uh, its successor that was the first to use ADB. Talking about the final Macs for everything here. The next type of uh, peripheral bus and port that we're going to talk about is uh, colloquially known as the serial port, but it would carry uh, specialized icons on the back because the same port could be used for modems and printers and uh, general networking. But this is another one of those DIN ports, mini DIN ports, and this is the one with eight pins. And this is one of those things that's important to not accidentally plug your serial port cable <laughs> into your ADB port because then you could definitely you have too many pins and not enough holes which is the big problem going the other way around i think you actually might have been able to accidentally plug adb into serial with absolutely no harm because then you just have empty port holes uh but yeah these ports typically line for for a long portion of the classic mac and power mac history these ports were pretty much lined up, you know, boom, 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 three little serial ports, three little mini DIN ports on the back of the Mac. And it turns out there are actually three kinds of these serial ports. And there's a link from lowendmac.com that we'll send to the show notes so you can get all this in more detail. But there were kind of the plain vanilla, simple serial ports that was basically every like 68K Mac, except uh, the Centris or Quadra AV series 
and the beast of the Mac that we always seem to talk about, the 2FX. Because the 2FX had a separate chip just for handling I.O., and so it had a, a serial port in uh, construction, but it was specifically referred to as the input-output processor port, referring, of course, to its uh, specialized silicon. And then there was also uh, a flavor of these serial ports called GeoPorts, um, which Lowen Mac refers to also as direct memory access ports. Uh, all of this is to say these were the same mini DIN 8-pin connector and there was a little bit of uh, dongle or hardware associated with this. And again, we could spend an entire episode talking about Apple Talk networking um, <laughs> and all of the horrors associated with that. Apple Talk, of course, was the protocol and kind of the software side. Local Talk was the hardware, like cabling and networking side. Apple actually made Local Talk boxes to uh, handle some of the networking stuff, which I did not know until looking up stuff for this episode, because there were also third-party local talk boxes where like one end would plug into this serial port and then the other end would accept telephone cabling. And this is something that we definitely attempted in our house growing up to try and get the Mac 2 that was at the time in my bedroom to talk to the Performa in the family room, to talk to the printer. And I don't think it ever worked once, but we certainly uh, spent a lot of time and money trying to get that all going. Yeah, there was there was definitely a period there where Apple and it seems like other PC manufacturers were trying to figure out what their what the overall format of a wired network looked like. And now we we clearly think of it as as Ethernet cables, as the was RJ forty five cables, which are like fat phone cables, mm -hmm. and that's it. Like you have you know you have different different categories of cable that have that same shape, and yeah, every every machine that you would want to network for a while had that that phone like connector on it, and you just go from one to the other. But that was definitely not the case, and. <laughs> Like you said, you know, there were these things that uh, were like network interfaces that were, I don't, it sounds like from your description, Brian, that they were somewhere between like what we think of as dongle now and a full on peripheral, like, like in the sense that when you had an external modem, it was a box that was, you know, maybe six or seven inches by four or five inches by an inch thick. But that was like a separate box that you had to set on your desk. Like I have a separate scanner here and some separate speakers here and a printer over on the bookshelf. Like we don't think of those as like intermediary IO devices. We think of them as like sep separate things unto themselves. Well, I remember as, in terms of size, I don't know if that's the distinguishing characteristic here, but in terms of size, it was kind of like uh, the dongles that took mini display port to uh, DVI or VGA that I'm sure litter lots of Mac heavy offices with kind of like the serial cable coming out as a cable and the little like matchbook sized box that had a, a place to plug in a phone cable. Okay. That's, that's definitely in, in dongle territory. <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about giant connectors though, and things that may range into a, a separate category entirely, 
we we can't go talking about peripheral buses without talking about SCSI. Yep. And well, SCSI is the small computer systems interface, and it was one of the workhorse connectors on Macs and some PCs, but I think it was much more specifically on Macs. Uh, Macs tended to have SCSI ports. PCs tended to have parallel ports, which looked fairly similar and had similarly monstrous connectors. And as I recall, SCSI had 25 and 50 pin connectors. And typically on the back of a Mac, you would find a DB25 connector. And so this was the biggest, widest trapezoidal connector that you could plug into your Mac. And these were, I mean, they were probably mm, two to three inches, you know, like almost 10 centimeters wide. Um, and and very serious, like you could not bend the end of these cables very well, uh, which sometimes led to difficult setups where you would kink cables in weird directions trying to fit a scanner or something onto onto a table. I know that we had a SCSI scanner. We had, um, so, so that's one type of IO that you could do over it. Our first zip drive was definitely a SCSI drive. Ours too. One of the more interesting features of SCSI was, of course, the fact that it was the first of these types of connectors that could be daisy chained. So not only did you know, so you would only have one SCSI port, but that didn't limit you to one SCSI device. So almost every SCSI device that you had would have an in and an out port. So you could pass through data from one device to the next. So, you know, you would plug the zip drive into the computer and the scanner into the zip drive. And then you still weren't done because on the final device in the chain, you had to put a SCSI terminator. Although later on, I think some devices became quote self terminating, but initially the way that this kind of circuitry worked was that if you didn't have a terminator in the final, final port on the chain, Literally, the circuit wasn't complete. So not only would it not work properly, it would not work at all. Like electricity not passing (laughs) through there. And so you had to put these little, they looked like, I mean, they were essentially plugs like you would see on the end of the cables with no cable on them. And you would just have to put them in there and, and make sure that it was right. One of the other things about SCSI that was a little bit of a nightmare was that it had channels. And... As I recall, there were six SCSI channels, so that did limit the total number of devices that you could have, uh, I think was six SCSI devices. And each device had to be on its own unique channel. And to set this channel, you would have to flip some combination of switches either on the device itself or on the cable that came out of the device. And there were these tiny little dip switches. And you would run into all these kind of weird situations where like you've got a zip drive that has a built-in hardware switch so it could only be on channel 5 or 6 but then you've got another device that has a connector with dip switches so it could be on any channel and you had to like use your available channels wisely and then not forget to terminate the thing scuzzy was a very finicky <laughs> kind of bus and yes because you were getting you know, routing all of this through in this complicated, convoluted, interconnected and interdependent way, sometimes you actually had to 
like change the order just to get things to work. You know, it was like it, it was like extensions management for hardware. It was one of the one of the biggest hardware nightmares of using an early Mac with many peripheral devices was was getting around SCSI. And something that we may all take for granted now, every time you wanted to change the arrangement of your SCSI things or unplug one or plug in a new one, yet your computer had to be off. Yeah, I mean, you know, pe- people said, oh, like if you unplug it, you'll break it. I think that was relatively rare. People will now email us telling us how they hot swapped ADB or SCSI devices and torched them. But I think actually destroying a, vi- a device was relatively rare. But because the system was not looking for hot swapping of devices, even if your hardware was still completely intact, when you replugged it all in, the computer's like, I only looked for new devices at startup. So you would still have to restart to, to get access to it. Of course, one of the other things, you know, maybe, maybe some of you have been who, who did not live through this era or <laughs> blessedly didn't have to deal with these devices are, are chuckling at the name SCSI. Yeah. Um, you know, because the acronym is SCSI, but that was the the standard way of referring to it. And although there was, and I think that this was mentioned in one of the Max for Dummies books, there was a a minority movement to instead pronounce it as sexy. <laughs> and uh, David Pogue was one of those uh, kind of tongue in cheek proponents of that, but it it never caught on. It was definitely scuzzy, and because of that. It has one of the greatest Wikipedia redirect notices that I've seen in a long time. So it says, SCSI, S-C-U-Z-Z-Y, redirects here. For the historic Sternwheeler known by that name, see SCSI, S-K-U-Z-Z-Y, parentheses, Sternwheeler, which is a boat. (laughs) SCSI was a Sternwheeler built by Canadian Pacific Railway contractor Andrew Onderdonk at Spuzzum, British Columbia. This sounds fake. <laughs> I think I think we've wandered into an ungenious episode here. <laughs> um, it was a boat. It was in Canada, uh, but the I/O standard was SCSI, and we fortunately no longer have to deal with it. I mentioned the the giganticness of the connectors, and of course, this was something to be overcome on portable devices, and this was done by Apple by using a different, completely different type of connector on some of their portables that were either HD30 or HD20 ports, uh, so different number of pins, and a completely different configuration. They were a small square connector with all of the pins arranged in, in, uh, like in a grid. And these were 100% proprietary. They enabled you to use traditional SCSI devices on portable Macs, early PowerBooks, but you definitely needed to have an adapter to go from your square little SCSI port into the big SCSI port that you are going to be connecting to. And of course, power it all down, then connect it. And, you know, this was not a, oh, I come into work and I sit down and I plug in one cable and all of my stuff springs to life kind of setup. So I think that covers it for uh, legacy peripheral buses, at least in the earlier period, you know, we're talking before, like the in the pre-iMac era, before the G3, G4, G5 kind of era of Power Max, and we'll cover those a little bit briefly at the end of the show. But we, boy, we've got a lot of other old stuff <laughs> to get to here. Um, so we'll move on now to networking, and this was another one of the ports that was 
that has been phased out by Apple recently. We were saying that there was that that lovely period where you could pretty much count on any Mac or really any PC having just a standard Ethernet, you know, 10 base, 100 base, gigabit Ethernet connection. You just have to have your Cat5 or Cat6 cable. Maybe you have to pay attention if it's a crossover cable or a patch cable if you're doing like, you know, computer to computer networking instead of plugging into a router or a switch. But like it was very, very standardized. That was a standard that Apple eventually signed on to. But for a long time, Apple devices had Ethernet. That is, they were using the Ethernet bus, but they were not using that standard like Cat5, RJ45 type of connection. And what we had instead was called AAUI Ethernet, or as I like to pronounce it, AUI Ethernet. <laughs> and I think that that is um, probably the the word that it made, you know, network administrators scream was AUI, because this was, this sounds like it was not fun at all. So this was a proprietary connection that was on the back of many, many Macs for, for years in the, in the 64K era. And it just doesn't look quite like anything else. <laughs> it's got a trapezoidal plug, but the arrangement of the pins is kind of non-standard. It has more of a, a box that protrudes you know, in line with the cable. And the fact of the matter is that unless you were connecting two Macs directly with AUI Ethernet, <laughs> by the way, it stands for Apple Attachment Unit Interface. And apparently there was an attachment unit interface that was some sort of standard, and Apple said, the heck with that. Yeah, we'll make our own. And we'll link to this in the show notes. So what you basically needed to connect to any kind of other Ethernet device was a, a, something called an AUI transceiver, AAUI transceiver. And these these definitely are in the the gray area between peripheral and dongle. Typically, they have a cable that then goes to a box that then goes to another cable. And they would either uh, translate from this proprietary plug to either the the cat five or cat six plug, or it looks like also coax that could be used for networking. Nobody liked these. <laughs> Is what it sounds like. They were slow. It was before standard 10 base T. Um, I guess it was called 10 base 2, which was a, a slower version of that and a slightly different standard. It looks not great. Uh, like, not a great way for connecting multiple devices. Uh, but <laughs> one other thing that was interesting here is that there is also a, uh, a networking layer that I guess went over top of that. And there were certain devices that were, uh, that were created for this networking system that Apple called friendly net, um, which again, doesn't seem particularly friendly. These, these ports showed up on 64 K max quadras, centrises, a few power books, and they all required this sort of additional headache of transceivers and whatnot to, to actually establish connections between two machines. So not really a great, a great networking standard. Over, over time, they got replaced by the, the global standard. And now today, I don't think, I don't know, can you buy any Mac that still has an Ethernet port on it? A mini? A mini and a pro? Yeah, perhaps a Mac mini and Mac pro, um, which are three years old at this point, <laughs> as people are 
keen to point out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to display ports. Uh, there are a bunch here, and we've we've gone through many in recent years as well. I think that this is one of the most common places that people think of like, oh, Apple, you and your dongles. Because, because we've been dealing with this for, at least in things that have impacted me, for 12 years or so. Yeah, I was going to say I went to college with a laptop that came packed in with a display dongle. Right, because Apple has had this history of saying, mm, they're display standards and we can do it better. And in certain cases, that has actually been the case. Yeah, the Apple implementation has been way better. But in other cases, it has been just different. And they've been prone to quick change, which means that, you know, like you're saying, some of them come, came with the display dongle packed in the box, like I think the PowerBook G4s pretty much did. Then they were sold separately. That's still the case today. And one of the things that I think makes people roll their eyes at this is that it was like, well, 12 years ago, I bought an adapter that went from what was on my Mac to VGA. Then I got a new Mac and I bought an adapter that went from what was on it to VGA. And I bought a new Mac <laughs> and I got an adapter that was third adapter that was different still that went from what was on it to VGA. <laughs> and I just gave a presentation like three weeks ago where, you know, I was going to a conference space. And so what did I pack in my bag? adapter to VGA because that's that's what you need. <laughs> but this goes all the way back, all the way back to the first Macs that used external monitors, which were of course not the very first Macs because they were all in ones, but very early on in the Mac's history. And we talk about VGA, the standard the standard that will not die. Um the, some of the very first Macs that drove external displays had a proprietary Apple DisplayPort. Not a surprise, given what we just talked about, but it was the same shape and very similar in appearance to VGA. It even had a blue color coding on some devices from the photos that I've seen. That's just devious. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a lighter blue. VGA is a darker blue. Um, so VGA is a traditional uh, D9 pin connector. Um it's it's got the trapezoid. It's got thumb screws on each side to secure the connection. This proprietary connector in the earliest Macs with external displays had the same holding shape, same thumb screws, uh, but fifteen pins in uh, on its bus. And so again, like like if you are just kind of looking briefly, or like oh, this cable looks like it'll fit in this PC's uh, the back of this PC, you could really lead to some trouble. And I think this is also interesting because um, for the entirety of the Intel era of Macs, Apple has publicized what brand of graphics card are in its machines. Um, and of course, it's the graphics card that has to interface with external displays. And so that kind of helps dictate what standards, what ports are being used. But back in the early days of the Mac, it was just kind of like we're throwing some VRAM in there, and we get and we get to dictate what the I/O situation will be. So this proprietary Display Port that looked like VGA but had more pins endured for a little bit. And am I correct that the DA15 connection here? One of the reasons that Apple chose it on Macs was there was actually 
a bit of a holdover from Apple IIs. Yes, that's what I think one of the articles I read about it said. Yeah, so it wasn't that Apple was being uh, necessarily proprietary and inventive when they went from all-in-one Macs to Macs with standalone monitors, but they might have actually been having some backwards compatibility with people who were upgrading from a from an Apple II to a Mac device as long as you had a high enough resolution display that uh, that it wouldn't look totally absurd with a new Mac. Someone will probably write us and tell us that none of those were compatible <laughs> at all. <laughs> this is one of those things. You know, one of the things with dongles is that just because you can get from shape A to shape B does not guarantee you compatibility. It often does, but again, it all depends on what pin is going to wear and what the computer is expecting from it. And so you may or may not have a situation where you've successfully adapted one thing to another. One of the other things, I, I mentioned the the smaller SCSI. Same thing here with the original DA15 port. There was a proprietary Mini 15 port for laptops, starting with the PowerBook 160, which I believe was the first PowerBook that could actually drive an external display. And again, totally dongle-tastic. <laughs> um, this is an interesting one. One of the interesting things about this Mini 15 port is that it just plugs in directly and seats, as opposed to VGA, which, as you mentioned, Brian, you can just plug it in and it'll probably be fine. But many VGA connectors have these thumb screws where you actually you know, tighten the connector in by, by screwing it into uh, to establish a firmer connection and make it impossible to yank the cable out directly. So this is a particularly weird looking little uh, little dongle because it has uh, screws on one end and none on the other. And if you look at some of the modern video adapters today, usually since it's the Apple adapter is accepting VGA, It'll have little screw threads, but it won't actually have anything that you have to screw in yourself when, as part of the adapter. That's something of the cable that's coming into it. So this is a particularly strange looking little, little gray, uh, little gray device here. <laughs> Moving on from the DA15, like we said, it was almost deceptively similar to VGA, something that in its era looked all the world like a monitor connector just regardless of what kind of Apple, PC, whatever kind of device you were coming from. Then Apple made a transition in the Power Mac era uh, to some cables that I definitely remember because we had this era of Power Mac in my family. And one of the frustrating things about it was that it was basically incompatible with every single type of screen in the world <laughs> uh, because it had this new type of connector called the HDI 45. HDI stood for High Density Interconnect, and these are on the Power Mac 6100, 7100, 8100 families. This one is particularly strange because not only was it proprietary only for Apple, but Apple only made one monitor that natively supported it, ever. One model of monitor, which was the Apple AudioVision 14 display. This monitor did not ship with these computers. <laughs> so 
I think that when we got our 6100, we had one of the Apple... I'm going to forget exactly what the model was. It was one of the Apple like multiple scan displays that had the Sony Trinitron technology in it. It was a 13-inch monitor. And so with this, we also had to purchase, not in the box, separately an adapter for our brand new computer and brand new monitor. Because unless you got this one particular strange AV monitor that Apple was shipping that had a cable that came out the back with this type of connection, you were not you were not using it. Um, and this particular connection, it's an odd looking one. It is not a trapezoid. So there were these other connectors like the the mini SCSI connectors where pins were just arranged in a grid, which looked very kind of neat. But this one is it's a wide connector. It has 45 pins, true to the name, and they're arranged in like sections of grid, but they're like broken up and they're asymmetrical. And it's just, it is inelegant. <laughs> and the reason that it existed uh, was that this Apple Audio Vision 14 display was supposed to do like everything all in one. What, a, what the heck do you need 45 pins for if VGA does it in nine or the DA15 does it in 15 just to get video out. But no, this connector was supposed to do video out, video in, audio out, audio in, power, like the whole shebang. And it only ever happened if you had this one particular, like very particular combination of desktop hardware and monitor hardware. And everyone else was just kind of stuck stuck in the middle. It, that's one of the things that, you know, like I said, we're not in dongle hell right now. Because everyone can see, like, everyone can see the past where we were and the future where we're going and that we're in a transition period. There was no transition period here. It was just, like, bad decisions <laughs> that you were going to have, like, the first three families of Power Max, like, the, the consumer middle line and top of the line of the entire desktop lineup would have a connector that wasn't just only working with future hardware or only working with past hardware, but only working with one piece of current hardware that was destined to be scrapped. Like, not a not Apple's best move here. And my family had to live with it for, for a little while. There's an interesting thing about that monitor that I think segues into our next uh, category of display, where... You mentioned it, you know, it's it's video going both ways. There was a that plug on the side of it that, like, it had the capability, but uh, it shipped with, like, a, a a video in plug covered up. Yeah, this is, this is actually part of the, you know, peculiar support for this monitor is that, yeah, it had video in and video out. And the, the video input port, like, they never successfully implemented it. <laughs> yeah. So they literally just like put a plastic plug in it. <laughs> um, oh, and it also has um, ADB. So you would plug one master cable into your monitor and you would get all this audio, in, you know, AV in and out, and also ADB that you would plug your keyboard into then. So this is kind of like the Thunderbolt display that is now deprecated, where the, the goal is the same. One cable gets power, input-output, and a peripheral port 
just in your monitor. That's like, that's your hub. You can put, put the rest of your computer somewhere else, not worry about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Thunderbolt display, people praise for its elegance, not so much here, because this was kind of half-baked. Yeah. And so, yeah, you mentioned that this is transition into the next type of connection, because that port on the side that was supposed to accept video in was actually an S-Video port. S-Video is an interesting standard, because it's also a mini DIN connector. Yeah, it looks like ADB. To the point that you could actually use an ADB connector, like an ADB wire, to connect S-Video devices. Because, if I'm correct, S-Video has one less pin, something like that, or one more pin, but one of those pins that is not particularly used for anything that is necessary, um, so that the the ports were compatible. And so when S-Video began to be a standard in, I would say, the late 90s. At least that's when I encountered it. People were like, oh, well, Apple got rid of all these ADB devices. I have this drawer full of ADB cables. Suddenly they're useful again. I don't have to buy S-Video cables. S-Video is an interesting standard because it's a video-only standard. Um, And some of the Macs around this time, especially the ones that had AV in the name, the AV models, and some of the PowerBooks, got... S-Video and also composite video. So that's the yellow cable in the yellow, white, red for video, left and right channel audio that was common on many AV devices, you know, like VCRs, DVD players, sort of like home entertainment type devices at that time. And so those Macs were designed to interface with those devices and perhaps accept uh audio or video data from them or output audio or video data to them. Uh, I know that with our Power Mac, we had the Apple design speakers, which actually went, they had the, the RCA cables. Oh, cool. But it went from mini plug to, and then split to left and right channel. It was kind of weird. Anyhow, these video standards started cropping up on Macs. I had a PowerBook that had S-Video out. I also had a TV in my dorm room that had S-Video in. This was pretty handy because the TV was a few inches bigger than the laptop screen, and the video that I was obtaining was not of significant quality that the uh, internal display really made a difference. Bigger was better, (laughs) even though there were decidedly fewer pixels and as you were setting up the video and actually showing like interface elements on the screen it looked really bad like almost illegible because things were being like shrunk and fuzzed down to a lower resolution than they actually were but i used s video a lot used it in in college for you know mostly watching torrented tv shows (laughs) be totally honest um especially when I was on study abroad and that was like our only way to get TV shows from the U S um, it was like right in the middle of the run of lost. Oh yeah. And there were several people in my program who like were not willing to get half a season behind in lost mm-hmm. um, because that could be disastrous. And so I would, I would download the episodes and then we would go down into the lobby where there was a like, standard deaf TV I would plug in S-Video from my PowerBook to the TV and everyone could gather around. The only problem was that S-Video is video only. So it's like VGA. You know, you're not going to get audio over a VGA connection. It's a monitor connection. 
in essence. And so that was also when I discovered Boom, <laughs> the the little utility that lets you crank up the volume of your your Mac beyond where it's supposed to go, because otherwise there was absolutely no way that anyone else in the room was going to be able to hear what was going on during those exciting episodes of Lost. Before we leave this realm of composite and S-video, there's one kind of interesting footnote in the realm of legacy uh, I.O. This is a wacky one. Yeah. Uh, So the original iBook G3, the Blueberry and Tangerine clamshells, had, I think, a modem, a USB, and maybe a headphone jack. And as the clamshell iBooks were revved, they added Firewire, maybe Ethernet, and the headphone jack changed into an AV port. You could still just plug your headphones into it, but it gained the full power of uh, the red, white, and yellow composite. And this was still the era when Apple was shipping dongles or adapter cables. These high-end iBook clamshells came with a breakout cable that was like a standard mini jack on one end and broke out to a yellow composite video and red and white left and right audio. And I always thought that this was like, this was some magic that like, surely once the iPod came out, uh, you know, like that could happen there. If it's the size of a headphone jack, you know, never mind all the circuitry and stuff going on to make it possible, but you could basically have a headphone jack sized port that sent out audio and video. Uh, and I thought that this was going to be the future, but I don't think it ever <laughs> went anywhere beyond one model of iBook. That has to be some like, I mean, I guess that the whole point of composite is that it basically goes over one pin hence composite but that's that is kind of like some some internal magic and looking at this cable it's weird like the connector goes at a right angle um we'll we'll put a picture in the show notes but you know a standard stereo mini jack like that i think they only either have three or four pins um you don't think of them as having any pins right they're those rings around it basically right right so they're pins in the electrical engineering sense in the circuitry sense but they're not pins like like those older connectors where you can actually see and bend and break the pins um but basically this must have had special internal circuitry like you said you know all of this all the magic is inside the device inside the laptop itself it would basically take these signals and split them out across the three pins uh and then split those into the three individual connectors very interesting little hack that I never experienced, but could have been uh, could have been pretty useful. I mean that that would have worked better for watching episodes of Lost. I'm <laughs> sure that that SDTV in Italy had uh, had a composite in. <laughs> so eventually, eventually, we got around to some industry standard connectors on Macs. So there have been, you know, I, I think, one of the things that is easy for Apple fans to point at and laugh at now are modern notebooks made in 2016 that have VGA connectors on the side of them. It's like, what are you doing? That plug is thicker than my entire machine. So you are clearly behind the times. But there were, in fact, a few Macs, including Mac laptops, that had VGA ports on them. In fact, the first Mac that had a VGA port was the Wall Street PowerBook G3 in 1998. But, but, things had to get thinner and lighter, of course. And, you know, 
in 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 that respect much better because Wall Street and Pismo for as great of machines as they were, they were six plus pound behemoths. Um, and so in the early 2000s, one of those first proprietary connectors that requires a little dongle uh, was what Apple called mini VGA. Despite the VGA in the name there, this is absolutely not a standard of any any sort. This is a totally Apple thing. And another odd kind of shaped connector. Uh, this one has it, it it's rectangular ish it's like a round rect maybe with different radiuses on the top and bottom yeah and the the connector has visible pins and then the port has if you look inside has the type of pin connectors like like the dock connector or like a phone connector does where they're the like open surfaces where where the contacts are made. It's kind of like Firewire 800, the whole thing. It's it's a little Firewire-ish, yeah. I, th- I think that's true. Um, but this was to shrink down the size of the port, and it was uh, a pain because it was totally proprietary, and it, it lasted for a few generations of laptops. And then as we move away from VGA, well, as some of us move away from VGA to DVI, uh, this mini VGA port was replaced by a similar mini DVI port. And this was on uh, late model 12-inch PowerBook G4s, some of the early model Intel-powered iMacs. And then mini wasn't small enough for the very first MacBook Air. So before the Apple laptop line transitioned to mini DisplayPort, um, the very first <laughs> models of MacBook Air had micro DVI ports. And uh, it's kind of the opposite of that AudioVision 14 display. Uh, we talked about like that was the only display which used its port. I think the MacBook Air may be the only machine <laughs> that used micro DVI. And uh, <laughs> so I don't know how, how many people ever needed those dongles. And this, this is the one that was in the little hidden port door. Yep, the little fold-down door. And so it had to be smaller to fit in there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to fold it back in. And then, of course, there were some full-size DVI ports on the sides of the bigger laptops of this kind of middling era, the late PowerBook G4s, the very early MacBook Pros. One other standard that has come along more recently for monitors is, of course, HDMI. And many third-party monitors now offer the ability to connect directly via HDMI, uh, some people have criticized this for reasons of like frame rate and such, but in practice, for most most you know just kind of like desk work or something, HDMI is a perfectly good standard, um, and it's showing up also a lot on projectors. I think pretty much every projector in my office has uh, both VGA and HDMI. So then it's a question of how I get from my MacBook Air to that. <laughs> um, but there have been a few Macs that actually had HDMI ports directly on them. I don't think we're going to see many, if any, in the future, because even HDMI is getting to be a little bit too big. But the thing that I found most interesting was actually which Mac had the very first HDMI port on it. And I I didn't know this, but it makes a ton of sense. The first HDMI Mac was the mid-2010 Mac Mini. And the reason for this is that the Mac Mini at this time 
This falls pretty much right between the first generation and second generation Apple TV. And if you recall, the first generation Apple TV, its actual case design looks almost exactly like a Mac Mini. Except, of course, it was running an you know, embedded iPod OS instead. And so it was in this transition period where the Mac Mini was a perfectly good just desktop Mac, but Apple was pitching it with things like Front Row and the and the Front Row Remote as being a device that you could use as a full-fledged Mac, but also replacing kind of one-for-one one in terms of its footprint, the original Apple TV. And so it was designed as this sort of media consumption device that one of your main uses of your app of your Mac mini is that you would plug it into your TV in your living room and you would watch things on it. Of course, this was then supplanted by the second generation Apple TV, which brought in, you know, new OS uh, configuration, smaller form factor, and these sorts of things that made the Mac mini less relevant for that particular use. And, some would say, less relevant in general. Contrary to what you may be hearing on podcasts and blogs right now, the mid-2010 Mac Mini was not the last time it was revised. (laughs) That's true. There have been at least a couple since then. Yeah. And we would be remiss in rounding up Apple, uh, Apple connectors for monitors if we didn't talk about the big behemoth one, ADC. Yes, this is the Apple Display Connector, another one that tries to combine lots of protocols into one cable so you can achieve that clean desktop look. Uh, the ADC carried DVI, USB, and power. A lot of power. Something like 110 volts of power. <laughs> yeah, because when you're thinking, it, they've got to power these, what, like 17, 19, 21-inch CRTs at the time. They, they take a lot of juice. Uh, this was released around the time that the G4 Cube came out, which makes sense. The G4 Cube had very little surface area for ports, so they um, devised this this cable that could uh, combine a couple into one, I'd say, like comparable to full-size DVI-sized port. And uh, it wasn't limited to the G4 Cube. It also uh, was on some models of the G4 Tower that were released at this time. Uh, But I think the thing that I remember most about ADC is that uh, one of Apple's products that I wish I had, and if you listen to our Mac draft episode, uh, one of the Apple products that I drafted was the the final 17-inch like Studio CRT was only over the Apple Display Connector bus. That's the one that looked like a standalone monitor that was like a graphite iMac. Yes, yes, exactly. Which made it look even more clean because it didn't have any of the guts inside of it except for the CRT tube. Right, exactly. And uh, I think we'll get to some fantasy scenarios later about uh, involving like how many dongles would it take? Uh, but I think ADC is going to be... <laughs> to to reach the center of a Tootsie Pop. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we'll leave we'll leave monitors there and uh, move on to audio. I mean, audio is something that again we've been fetching about. I think recently uh, with the elimination of the standard stereo mini jack uh, from the iPhone Seven, but there have been other many other ways of getting audio in or out of Macs. Uh, one that 
I never had a chance to use because I never had any of the Macs that supported it, even though I had some peripherals that encouraged you to use it. Uh, and I had friends with Windows PCs who installed separate cards for this purpose was optical audio. So this was, I think, touted as, you know, the audio files best solution for clean, perfect uh, digital audio coming out of your machine instead of dirty, grody analog audio coming over just three pins in a, in a wire, you know, the past. Um, and this used a particular type of connector that goes by many different names, uh, SPDIF, <laughs> uh, SPDIF, the Sony Philips Digital Interface Format, or TOSLink, which was short for Toshiba Link. Obviously, this technology came from other tech manufacturers, so Apple was not perhaps as keen to adopt it as they might have been for something else. And this particular type of connector was probably, yeah, probably achievable on many expandable Macs if you had like a PCI card, expansion card that would add ports to your Mac. I mean, of course, that was a possibility that we're not even really talking about here. We're talking about built-in ports that came on the Mac as you purchased it. But these optical audio ports really only existed on cheese grater Macs. So the Power Mac G5 and the cheese grater Mac Pros, and they, you know, they were seen as basically pro audio equipment was the target audience here. Although if you had a mini disc player like I did in high school, you could technically do optical audio into them. Of course, I didn't have that possibility on my Mac at the time. And that meant that I went to crazy lengths that probably did action, you know, audiophile stuff, you know, let's not get into those arguments. But <laughs> the kind of stuff that I did to get audio into my mini discs was probably was definitely impacting the audio quality because I would download 96 kilobyte MP3s from Napster. And then I would, because I had to play them in real time onto it, I either had to monopolize the Mac and make sure that no alert sounds played for like the hour that I played audio into, into the mini disc player that was recording, or I could burn a CD, which meant going from the, uh, you know, the lossy MP3 back to basically AIFF on the CD, take it over to my dad's stereo and then plug in with a stereo mini jack, <laughs> uh, into that. And that, that would at least be undisturbed. But it was like going, you know, like re-encoding audio, going through the analog hole. It was exactly what optical audio was designed to eliminate. And in an interesting reversal, uh, we talked about how this the standard optical audio jack goes by many names that incorporate other brands into those names. Uh, in some models of certainly MacBooks and maybe other uh, more recent Apple hardware, the stereo mini jack headphone port has actually been equipped with optical audio out. Uh, so it's kind of taking a more proprietary jack and format and <laughs> putting it in a more widely available mainstream port. However, since the main use of optical audio is over these like standard ports, you would need a special cable or a dongle to convert from the like headphone jack to full-size optical audio port. There was some other weirdness with speakers on, uh, especially on the sort of early Power Macs. And I alluded to this with the fact that we had those Apple design speakers 
that needed a Y cable. And many of these Power Macs had like multiple, basically, audio out jacks, the, the standard 3.5 millimeter jacks, but with some, with some catches. Like we, we mentioned earlier that you had the serial ports where one was for printer and one was for modem. And you, like you couldn't, you couldn't switch those or you were not printing anything today, even though they were exactly the same type of connection. The Power Mac 6500 had an extra audio jack that was 100% dedicated for a subwoofer if that was the kind of thing that you were going to hook up to your Power Mac. Actually, as we're talking about this, did the 20th anniversary Mac have one of these too? Because it had that giant Bose <laughs> subwoofer. I think those might have daisy-chained in some way. I don't even know. But yeah, uh, so a, a dedicated second 3.5 millimeter standard mini jack for a subwoofer. There were other families of the Power Mac desktop, like the 75, 85, and 8600, that had the direct yellow and red RCA audio out. And then there is, uh, well, there's the number one weird audio setup for for Max. And you alluded to this, Brian, that the G4 Cube just did not have a whole lot of space for ports because it was so small. So I did not realize this. You know, like I said, we've been talking about this recently. Headphone jacks are small. You can fit them in just about anything. They fit in iPod touches. They're thinner than than iPhones, right? But the G4 Cube did not have a standard stereo jack. It had audio out via USB only. And the bundled Harman Kardon speakers, which were supposed to be absolutely delightful, or which you could up- upgrade to the sound sticks with the, with the subwoofer and everything, they came bundled with, guess what? Dongle that went from USB to mini plug out. And it's a big box. This thing is bigger than the, than the Griffin iMate that goes from USB to ADB. And it's it's the beautiful, like, suspended black inside clear plastic. It matches, but it was one of the things that uh, I think we'll post a link to a review of the G4 Cube as well that basically says it's this delightful art object, but but Apple doesn't tell you about all the things that you have to, like, hide under your desk or on the floor to get it to work because it also had a huge power brick, basically the, the power supply. The entire power supply was outside of the cube. And also, if you wanted any kind of audio out, you needed this additional little little brick that was going to be squirreled away somewhere between your cube and your little orb speakers, the Apple Pro speakers or the Harman Kardon speakers. Maybe your, your little audio brick was plugged into your monitor using its ADC, including <laughs> USB, right? This It's the dream. <laughs> uh, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Uh, these Harman Kardon little ball speakers, I guess, were were liked enough that Apple started to include them with other Mac models and sell them separately. But in order for them to uh, work with your Mac, you had to have a special model because, of course, the separately sold speakers themselves wouldn't plug into a standard headphone jack. No, they plugged into a slightly modified jack. Skinnier and longer. Yeah, for the purposes of maybe sending them power, you know, whatever. I think that was exactly it, was that they had an extra pin for power. This Apple speaker mini jack was also found on the iMac G4, the lamp iMac, and certain G4 towers of whatever vintage this was all going on. Yeah, and this is one of those things is that when whenever Apple gets clever and decides to send extra power over a bus of any sort, 
Um, this is one of the things that fortunately USB and Thunderbolt have largely obviated is that they generally send enough power to drive whatever kind of peripheral you're plugging in. But when Apple gets clever like this, and then you say, oh, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just have an adapter. Well, that's great. It, it adapts the data pins and gets the data in and out. But then you still have to supply power. So instead of just having one of these one-to-one adapters, you start to get these Hydra dongles where you know it, it splits so that you can bring in power from an additional source that was not expected and modulate it to the right level and, and things get messy quick. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a mess for a long time. <laughs> nothing, nothing is new or special about this stuff. So let's run through a few other uh, miscellaneous I/O options that were available on old Macs and and cover the bridge the history up to where we are today. Since we were just talking about sound, we talked about Apple's separately sold standalone plain talk microphones in episode thirty-eight about voice control, and these microphones also needed a little bit of power. So the audio in jack on some early Snow White design Macs uh, was was slightly different, slightly deeper to accommodate the uh, the extra pin for power. Yeah, I was just uh, doing some initial exploration and data recovery, well, planning for data recovery on my grandpa's Performa 6200 which I pulled out of a box over the weekend and there was a plain talk microphone in there. And also I pulled out that, uh, that machine and, uh, cleaned it off. It was a little grody in there <laughs> and set it up on the desk. And it also has a little, uh, little black square on the front of, of the box because it had an infrared connection for, for data transmission. So there were several, several Macs in the, uh, in that early Power Mac era that had, uh, that had actual IR data buses on them. Uh, I think Steven mentioned this, uh, on one of the episodes that he was on where he said like, you know, this was just totally worthless. It was for things like, like contact sharing or something. Yeah. If you had like a PDA, either a Newton or some of the, the Palm devices might have been compatible to like sync your calendar and contacts back and forth. But you had to literally hold the device up and it, it was flashing a light. It was basically doing like Morse code <laughs> to get your data across, which is not, not really efficient. So this was on these Performa's 6200 and 6300 series. Um, and also on the original iMac, that was the one that he mentioned. It then pretty much went away. There were some other models that had IR transceivers, like the Mac TV, and then some of the later iMacs, the some of the G5s. Front row machines. Exactly. And then some of the uh some of the MacBooks, MacBook Pros, and iBooks that had uh had IR remotes that came with them. But that was not for data I.O. That was just for, I mean, those function on exactly the same technology as like a television remote, where the amount of data that you're sending is one chunk, like I am pressing volume up. Like that's that's the only bit of data that you need to send. So um, that is literally bits of data, you know, probably only, I don't know, probably four, eight bits of data just to say like, hey, volume up or hey channel nine or, you know, whatever, or menu or play pause, like very small bits of encoded data, as opposed to like trying to get 
your, you know, address book across without garbling or corrupting something because, you know, because you wiggled it. (laughs) And then, you know, there's an entire class of, of IO that, that falls in between. Um, I don't think we're going to get into all of the like expansion card stuff, um, which was possible on a lot of power books with like express card, PCM, CIA, all of these kinds of things that would allow you to, they were in a sense ports, but they were really expansion bays, sort of mini expansion bays. And then of course, there's all of the stuff that we consider legacy IO today, but is not legacy IO in the, in the context of the classic Mac. So all of the USB iterations and Firewire, I mean, we've we've skipped Firewire entirely, which is maybe doing a a disservice because there are no Firewire Macs now. And Firewire was new technology that didn't come in until after the iMac, at least, um, but was present on the original iPod. It was, in fact, the only way that you connected the original iPod was direct through Firewire. When I went back to watch the original iPod event for our town hall episode, uh, Firewire was actually one of the things that was required to make a device like that necessary. A, a port small enough that it'll fit on the modest dimensions of a deck of cards and something that will make transferring a thousand songs not suck. <laughs> like doing that over USB would be excruciating. They still did that terrible demo where they actually waited for data to transfer over at USB 1 speeds. And then, of course, to also be its power source. Uh, so FireWire was a very crucial piece of I.O. to Apple history. It's just unfortunately been supplanted by the extensible USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 as we record. So where we are, Thunderbolt 3, I mean, we're going to skip here just to, to wrap up the show. We're going to skip four generations of high-speed I.O. So there was FireWire 400, like on the original iPod. Then there was FireWire 800, which doubled the bus speed and changed the connector to make it smaller. And since then, we've had Thunderbolt 1 and 2, and now it's Thunderbolt 3. So things are still moving along quickly. Um, and we'll, only time will tell if uh, Thunderbolt 3 will really be the the grand unifying theory of connectors or whether we'll just continue adding to this list. While we're on that subject, uh, I mentioned this earlier, just to imagine uh, what it would take to drive my my dream monitor, the flat, gorgeous, see-through, 17-inch Apple CRT display on the computer I just bought a MacBook Pro with Thunderbolt 3. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is always fun, and and it gets to that notion of, you know, A, dongle hell, and B, the fact that in some respects, there's kind of no magic here, is that all of these different connectors for all of the different capabilities, incompatibilities, port shapes, et cetera, et cetera, conveniences and inconveniences, all they do, they're all I.O. That's it, input and output of data. And so if you can finagle the right path from point A to point B, you should be able to set up certain devices. So one example of this that has actually been proven to work is that you can hook up an ADB keyboard to an iOS device. It's a little bit bonkers. You'd have to be totally dedicated to this fact to, you know, even if you love your clacky Apple Extended 2 keyboard, 
it has ADB. You have to adapt that to USB. You have to adapt that to Lightning with one of the like like camera connection kits, camera connector, yeah, or some, something that is totally not meant for that. And but lo and behold, it works. Um, and that's been done with external keyboards and that um that iPad inside of a uh, Mac Portable mm, that mm-hmm. we uh, that we talked about a few episodes yeah, ago. That's right. Um, so like that's possible. But then we were trying to figure out, uh, we were were just trying to figure out, is it possible to hook up that beautiful studio display to a modern Mac? And what do we think? I think on paper it's possible, but who knows if it would work because we would take uh, a Thunderbolt 3 to a Thunderbolt 2 slash mini display port and then take mini display port to full size DVI. So these all exist. (laughs) Full-size DVI to ADC, which at some point also needs to be broken out back to a USB-A, which I do have the adapter from USB-A to USB-C, as well as power, but uh, have all three of those feed into an ADC adapter, which the display can plug into. I think I have bad news for this this plan, actually, Brian. Oh no, what is it? Which is that which is that I heard recently that the Thunderbolt three to Thunderbolt two adapter only supports Thunderbolt two. It does not support mini display. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's all dead in the water. Someone make a Thunderbolt three to specifically mini port mini display port. Heck, just make it just just get out your soldering iron and go straight to ADC. Yeah. <laughs> if any of our listeners are electrical engineers who can make this happen, yeah. Uh send it in. <laughs> Also, please send me that monitor. <laughs> I, I, it's not like I have one. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this this has been a uh, interesting uh, interesting look through the rich history of bizarro connectors that Apple has put on their devices. I mean, that's why we kind of wanted to do it. It would be boring if if everything that came before was just you know merely obsolete. Just to say, like, oh yeah. Every monitor was VGA, and we know that that's not the best, and can't descri- and can't drive Retina displays now. And oh yeah, everything just had uh, stereo jacks, and we're moving to wireless audio. And oh yeah, everything had the you know totally uh, bog standard uh, networking connections with Cat five cable from the beginning. But that's not the way that it's come together. So the fact that that things are still messy is uh, is a little bit to be expected. Yeah, we're not recording this and and sharing with everybody to be a kind of like you young whippersnappers don't know how good you actually have it. <laughs> it's it's just that this has always been a way of computing, especially if you're in the Apple ecosystem. Yeah, and that the individual ports get better, but the overall situation has largely stayed the same. So if we can make you know if if Apple can make improvements there, great. But if it's still a little bit messy, it's not because they're trying to sucker us or because they're they're making things significantly worse. It's it's computing as we know it. Yeah. So we may have uh, I, I don't know. I think we were pretty pretty exhaustive there, but we may have skipped over some uh, some particularly strange port or an adapter that will let us hook up uh, delightful old things to our modern Macs. And if that's the case, and and we missed anything of that sort. Uh, Feel free to get in touch with us. You can do that on our website, simplebeep.com, where there is a feedback form. Or, of course, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, at simple underscore beep. We are also on Twitter individually. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And, of course, you can find the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or on our website at 
simplebeep.com slash episodes, and we will have some photos of these wild and wonderful connectors there. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.